Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Among a number of wonderful exhibitions we have on view now is Silicon City Computer History Made in New York about the invention of computers in New York. And to give context to this period, we've organized a number of programs on technology and war. Coming up this Friday at 7 p.m., we will have Rick Burns discussing one of his favorite films, Dr. Strangelove, and we will follow his talk with the screening. So if you can make it, I can tell you, every time Rick does a talk here, it is really spectacular, has a lot of depth, he's, he's very intense, and he's fabulous. So I encourage you all to come. If you don't already have brochure from this fall winter, from the fall winter season, we still have them. You can pick one up on your way out. Our new spring programming is complete. It's up on our website. This is the new brochure that you will be receiving in the mail, and it will be at our visitor services desk soon as well. And if you're not on our mailing list, now's the time to get on for the next brochure that will come out. We want to thank you. I want to take, before my scarf covers my face here, thank you. Thank you all so much for coming to this program, to all our programs. You just keep filling the halls. We have our wonderful speakers, but without you, we, we are not going to exist. So you are our great support, um, along with some others I'm going to mention, but I always ask how many members do we have with us in our audience? And I see quite a few, t usually we have one and a half people who are not members. But tonight I see more, so I want to encourage you to join the family. Your membership helps us support all the programs that we do, and of course, we love having you here. Tonight's program, Sherman's, oh, I'm just gonna hand off the brochure right now to our wonderful volunteer, Jim. Tonight's program, Sherman's Other March, Burning the Carolinas, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz, who is a model member and a trustee here at New York Historical for all his incredible support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical Let's give him a big hand. Thank you, Mr. Schwartz. I'd also like to recognize and thank Russell Penoyer and Sue Ann Weinberg, our two other trustees with us tonight, and all the chairman's council members with us for all their great work and support. Let's give them a big hand, too. So thank you all, members, trustees, chairman's council, for your great support. The program will last an hour and include a question and answer session, and there'll be a formal book signing following the program, and copies of the speaker's books will be available in our museum store. We're delighted to welcome John F. Marzalek back to New York Historical Society. Dr. Marzalek is the Giles Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at Mississippi State University and the Executive Director and Managing Editor of the Ulysses S. Grant Association, which has published 32 volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. He is the author or editor of numerous books, including Sherman, A Soldier's Passion for Order, which was a finalist for the Lincoln Prize and Sherman's Other War, The General and the Civil War Press. We are also thrilled to welcome back James M. McPherson, the George Henry Davis, 1886, Professor of American History, Emeritus at Princeton University, and one of the country's preeminent Civil War scholars. Dr. McPherson is the best-selling author of numerous books on the Civil War, including Battle Cry of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1989. He is a two-time winner of the Lincoln Prize for his books Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, and for Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War. And I am missing a page. 
Our moderator, here it is, and the other one went. Our moderator for the evening is Harold Holzer, and I'll take that, please. Thank you very much. Harold Holzer, the Jonathan F. Fanton Director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College. He's the author, co-author, or editor of more than 51 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era, including his recent Lincoln and the Power of the Press, The War for Public Opinion, which was the recipient of the prestigious Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize. Mr. Holzer served as content consultant on the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln and served as the Roger Hertog Fellow for three years here at New York Historical. In 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal. Now, I think when I was telling you about Rick Burns' film, I forgot to mention that Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series is another one of the programs that Mr. Schwartz um, funds, and it's in its fourth year. So we're moving on, and again, we thank you all. If you have a cell phone, electronic device, please turn it off. And now, please welcome our guests. Thank you. Well, good evening and welcome. Um, it's great to be back in the same seats as we always occupy. Uh, for those of you who have come to a number of, of our sessions uh, with John and Jim for another one of our, our deep dives into the Civil War, we are promised and we are promising each other that we'll do more uh, in the coming seasons. But we have a topic today that we think is one of the best that we've come up with. It's a neglected Civil War story because of the focus on Sherman's famous march through Georgia. There's a little bit less attention on Sherman's other march, which followed the march through Georgia. We're going to take a look at this scowling man in that fantastic coat um, as, we, as we begin talking about him. So I, I'm going to start with, uh, with John who, as you heard, has written two wonderful books about William Sherman. And um, I think we need to know, I don't know how you can do it in a few minutes, but we need to know who this guy was, his family, his psyche. Tell us something about this fellow in the double-breasted uh, uniform coat. Well, one thing I just to begin with, this picture that you see was taken of Sherman, and he didn't want to have that picture taken. So he's not a happy camper. So this is not the best picture of him. But just very briefly, Sherman has a very difficult childhood. His father dies when he's nine years old. He goes to live with a neighbor while his mother is living just up, up the street because she simply can't afford to take care of all the children. And one thing leads to another. And throughout his life, he never quite gets over this reliance that he has to place on Thomas Ewing his uh, foster, uh, foster father. He ends up going to West Point. He doesn't particularly care for it. He does pretty well, but he gets too many demerits, so he drops his place in, in the class. But the most important thing, I think, to remember about, uh, about Sherman before we get into the, the marches is he spent most of his pre-Civil War years in the South, and some of his best friends were Southerners. And so if you want to understand why destructive war developed, a lot of reasons, obviously, but one of the main reasons was Sherman did not want to continue the warfare of annihilation. He didn't want to keep killing people because he would be killing his friends. And so he comes up with the idea from various sources, comes up with the idea to use destructive war, psychological war, convince Southerners who he knows that they have no chance of winning by using this destruction, by using the, this uh, psychology. And that's what he does. Now, there's a lot more to Sherman, but I, I think that's a good to keep. That's a good start. Um, I'm going to show another picture. Clearly, he liked having his picture taken sometime, because there are a lot of pictures of William Sherman. Yeah. Um, Jim. In 1861, Sherman is uh, already a veteran. 
and yet something happens he, psychologically. And there are rumors that, and headlines that Sherman is, quote, insane, which is not a great thing for a commanding general to be burdened with. So tell us the, the, what happened there and your medical and uh, assessment of his condition. Well, Sherman was in command of a brigade at the first battle of Bull Run, which was a kind of devastating experience for him. Uh, but he did pretty well, and uh, he was put in charge of the Union forces in Kentucky uh, in the West, where he confronted uh, Albert Sidney Johnston, uh, was building up a Confederate uh, defensive force. And Sher uh, Sherman uh, wasn't ready for that responsibility. And he uh, became very nervous about the Confederates he was facing, uh, like McClellan at that stage of the war, he exaggerated the number of Confederates. He saw that they, he, he, he felt that they were going to invade, that he needed uh, a couple of hundred thousand troops to confront them. Uh, and he made some rather um, wild statements about that that were not based on fact. And the newspapers started um, claiming that he was insane. Uh, and the burden of the responsibility actually caused him to have a nervous breakdown. Uh, and so he was removed from command, but fortunately, General Henry Halleck, who was uh, in command of the, all of the Western Union armies at that stage of the war, um, uh, gave Sherman another chance. He sent him to St. Louis to uh, train new troops, uh, take the pressure off of him after Sherman went home for a leave of absence for a while. Uh, and Sherman recovered his stability and uh, became a commander of division uh, that fought under Grant at Shiloh. And that began the partnership between Grant and Sherman, which, as many historians have said, uh, the partnership that won the Civil War. I was going to say, just to add something, Harold, that previous uh, picture, I don't know if you know where Sherman on, on horseback is a very famous one. And that allegedly is the site of where the President Jimmy Carter Library is. As you, oh, you drive yeah, in, right. there's a circle. I've in. heard that, right. Yeah, yeah. Whether it is or not, I've never checked it out, but it's a good story. But let's get to Shiloh, or let's go back to Shiloh. Go back so, to Shiloh. Sherman at Shiloh. He, the, 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 it's first major battle as Grant's lieutenants. Tell us a bit about his experience there rather than Grant's. Well, this is where I think, uh, and I think Jim made a good point, this is this relationship between Grant and Sherman really is, is solidified. Uh, what happens, as you, may, as you probably know, the first day the Confederates surprised the Union troops. That means they surprised Grant, they surprised Sherman, they surprised others, uh, pushed them back. That end of the first day, Grant and the Union troops are hanging on by their, uh, by their fingernails. And the famous story of Sherman going to see Grant that night. It's pouring down rain, something fierce. And he, he's, he's going to ask uh, Grant for what are the retreat orders. And as he walks up, he, he notices something. And, and, you know, Grant is not an impressive-looking individual, but there was something that Sherman saw. And instead of saying, what are the retreat plans, he says, hell of a day we've had, haven't we, Grant? And Grant grumbles back, yes, we, we, we have had a terrible day, but we'll lick them tomorrow. And Sherman is just taken, taken aback. Here's a guy that's not going to quit. He's going to keep moving forward. So I think we talked about what, uh, what, what Jim and Harold were talking about, this, the, the, the emotional difficulty that, uh, uh, that uh, Sherman had. And, and I argue that it's because uh, he was fighting his friends and it, and it bothered him. But the point is, when the two of them got together at Shiloh, this began this friendship. Each saw something in the other that was going to let them support each other and allowed Grant to allow Sherman to do what Sherman wanted to do, give him very basic orders. And then we're going to jump ahead of necessity. Grant heads east in, in uh, the spring of 1864 to take command of the entire Union Army and right. base himself with the Army of the Potomac. And Sherman is alone, and that's the beginning of the Atlanta campaign. So Jim, walk us through 
the capture of Atlanta and the beginning of this uh, storied march that will come after that? Well, Grant's plan for uh, 1864 was a coordinated offensive by several Union armies, principally the Army of the Potomac in Virginia under General Meade, and uh, the Army of Georgia, which was now a, 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 a combination of the old Army of the Tennessee and the Army of the Cumberland and the Army of the Ohio. Three uh, armies are now combined under Sherman, uh, and Grant's orders to Sherman are to get into the interior of Georgia, wreck their, uh, their war resources, and uh, capture Atlanta, and uh, drive Joe Johnston, commander of the Confederate uh, Army of Tennessee, defending Georgia, uh, out of Georgia. Uh, and so they, Sherman um, begins that campaign in the second week of May of 1864, at the same time that the armies are fighting in Virginia. Uh, and unlike the campaigns in Virginia, where, which were a series of head-on collisions between Grant and Lee at the Wilderness, at Spotsylvania, at Cold Harbor, and then at Petersburg, uh, Sherman engages in a series of flanking moves, uh, usually moving to his right under General James McPherson, no relationship, <laughs> uh, although I'd like to claim a relationship. Getting into the Confederate rear, forcing them to retreat. Uh, this happens over and over again, uh, from Dalton <coughs> to, uh, to um, uh, Resaca, and then from Resaca to, Cal to um, Cassville, and on and on. Uh, and at uh, Kennesaw Mountain, uh, Sherman does attack and gets a bloody nose. Uh, he engages in another one of his uh, flanking movements, this time to the left crosses the Chattahoochee River. Johnston retreats to the defenses of Atlanta, uh, having not stopped Sherman uh, over a, a course of nearly 100 miles of these flanking maneuvers. And Jefferson Davis uh, gives up on Johnston and removes him from command, appoints John Bell Hood, a fighter who had come up under Lee in Virginia uh, as commander of the Army of Tennessee. Uh, Hood repeatedly attacks Sherman uh, trying to drive him back from Atlanta, and uh, Hood gets a series of bloody noses, even bloodier than Sherman got uh, at Kennesaw Mountain. And finally, uh, Sherman undertakes the last of his flanking movements at the end of August and the beginning of September, uh, cuts the last railroad into Atlanta, coming in from the south, uh, forces Hood to um, evacuate Atlanta on September 2nd, uh, and uh, that has a huge political impact in the North because uh, Northern people have become weary of the war and of the slaughter, especially in Virginia during the summer of 1864, with nothing to show for it, or apparently nothing to show for it. And now comes the message from Atlanta, from Sherman, Atlanta is ours and fairly won. Uh, people in the North uh, go wild at this news. It turns morale around and probably I've argued, and I think uh, everybody else probably would agree, uh, that it's one of the major turning points of the war. Uh, the final turning port to point toward uh, Union victory uh, is the fall of Atlanta at the beginning of se September 1864. It ensures Lincoln's reelection. Um, it ensures that the North is going to prosecute this war to ultimate victory. Uh, and Sherman becomes uh, uh, the, the leading hero in the North. In fact, in, in terms of politics, it, it, we don't have political surveys from the mid-19th century, but it had been widely assumed that Lincoln was going down to defeat. He was desperately thinking of what to do at the end of August, even thinking of demanding to know whether Jefferson Davis was ready to negotiate, writing a draft letter to that effect. He was desperate right before Atlanta, and it clearly turned things around because he won 56% of the vote in a couple of months. So what does Sherman do, John? He's got Atlanta, Atlanta. fairly taken, and then we begin the famous march east. And this, I think, kind of brings into focus what we were talking about, the relationship between uh, uh, Sherman and Grant, because both Grant and Lincoln don't think it's a good idea for Sherman to take off and march to the, to the sea. Uh, and Sherman has to convince Grant. And once Grant is convinced, then Lincoln 
is convinced. But basically, what Sherman is doing, he is cutting off the base of his supplies. He comes to the conclusion that he can't hang on to Atlanta, so he makes Atlanta a military post. He, he depopulates it, although it's fair to say that it was already depopulated a great deal. It was about 20,000 when the war began. When Sherman comes in, there's maybe a couple thousand. By the time he leaves, uh, and by the way, the Gone with the Wind story is, is a myth, so you don't need to get into that. But when, he, when Sherman leaves, Atlanta is not leveled to the ground, and what is burned has been burned by Confederates, by, uh, uh, by the Confederates as, as they're leaving. And so the result is that Sherman leaves Atlanta behind, cuts off his supply line, and marches east. Now keep in mind one important thing that historians don't often talk about is that Sherman had a bunch of cattle, a lot of cattle, following his army. So they had some food on the hup, so to speak. They had their own hamburger stand following behind, I guess. But they do have that, and each one of the soldiers is given a food to last several days. Now, they still live off the countryside, no, no question about this. And they destroy a great deal. And again, you don't want to believe all the stories that are out there because the destruction that was done on the march to the sea was done not only by Sherman's army, but also by the Confederate army, by Joe Wheeler and his cavalry. They destroyed a tremendous amount. And remember what Beauregard said. Beauregard, as only Beauregard, Beauregard could do, sent out this thrilling pronouncement saying, destroy everything in Sherman's path so he will have nothing to live on. And just finally, Tusha just mentioned and a lot of other things that we could talk about. But in the 1950s, a geographer from the University of Georgia did a study of one chunk of the March to the Sea. He went back, didn't want to do the whole thing, didn't have enough time, but took one chunk of it and looked at property records and found out what was standing there when Sherman came and what was still standing there in the 1950s. And guess what? A lot of houses were still standing there that had been there when Sherman came through. So he did burn everything to the ground. And there's a lot of other things. I have there. to tell you that before I turn to Jim, that John made this argument at the Museum of the Confederacy <laughs> a couple of years ago. They have an annual program called Man of the Year, you know, like Time Man of the Year. And four or five of us were invited to present. I thought I was going to have a tough time trying to say that Lincoln was the Man of the Year in 1864 because he won re-election. <clears throat> John had the audacity to present Sherman with this argument that he's created about houses that are standing and the geological record. And <laughs> guess, guess what? John won. Sherman was elected man of the year. He got national press. A whole country took notice that this rather tenuous argument had taken hold <laughs> in the southern imagination. I just had to give him credit for Thank that you. Yes, achievement, I think. a dubious Thank achievement. You. Well, uh, just along those lines, uh, James Reston Jr. about 25 yes, years ago yes. did a book called Sherman's March in Vietnam. And he followed the route of the march and he talked to people along the way and he would go into a town uh, and the local guide would tell him uh, Sherman had burned everything down. And, <laughs> yeah. and then, and then uh, he would uh, say, but I want to show you some of our antebellum homes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But, but he took... Obviously, livestock, food, oh, crops. Sure, How sure. wide? I mean, this is not four people riding abreast. No. How wide is this army as it cuts across Georgia? 60 miles swath. There were four Army Corps in, 60 Sherman's, miles. in Sherman's well, army, and they, they each traveled on separate roads. Mm -hmm. uh, and the cavalry would weave back and forth under, under uh, 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 Judson Kilpatrick. Um, so they, they did cut a wide swath through Georgia. But did they, they did leave... Did they cut up railroad lines, as this very famous Civil War print shows? Oh, yeah, exactly. Making they, Sherman's bow ties by right. melting the railroad lines and twisting them around trees. So that's, well, yeah. that's all true. That is true. In fact, uh, it was a great, one of these great stories. Uh, you remember 10, 15 years ago, the Mississippi River went down. You remember it was very dry and and all, and there's a river 
that goes through Jackson, Mississippi, where Sherman also uh, spent some time. And at, at that place, the river went down, guess what they found? They found some Sherman's neckties. They would take the rails, bend them, heat them up, bend them around a tree, and sometimes they would, uh, they would bend them to form the letters U.S. And to make the, uh, to make the point. But Jim's, uh, Jim's point is very well taken. I might just add, too, that there have been some recent books uh, written by women uh, historians and, in which they argue that to really understand the march to the sea, you have to understand it as a gender issue, not a military issue in the same way. I'm not quite convinced, but I, I can see the argument that, uh, that's being made. Uh, certainly, uh, Sherman didn't see it as a gender issue. He saw it as a military issue to, to convince the South that they have to stop fighting because they can't continue. Right. And the psychological toll was huge. And psychological toll I do huge. want to present to the audience one thing we talked about privately before we started oh. that I hadn't realized, because I know there are a few physicians in the audience tonight, and you, you both said to me that Sherman's was the healthiest army in, in the war. Just explain that. Well, it's because they never stayed in the same place two nights in a row, so they didn't follow their own water supply. Uh, they they uh, were kept on the move in the open air. Uh, it was garrison troops in the Civil War or winter quarters in the Civil War where you had high disease mortality because uh, of the uh, sanitation conditions and the, uh, the uh, water supply. And, uh, but Sherman's army was on the move. And they ate well, I guess. And they ate well. well. Of course they ate well, yeah. All those it's, hamburgers. It's a fascinating sidebar. So let's get him to... Savannah, because we have to make the turn north. Um, he gets to this beautiful, beautiful city, beautiful which, which he spares, right? Um, and he writes a wonderful letter to Abraham Lincoln. I beg to present to you as a Christmas gift the city of Savannah with 150 heavy guns and plenty of ammunition and also about 25,000 bales of cotton. And uh, this is a fanciful picture by a German artist named Otto Boddicker of Sherman at Savannah, at the gates of Savannah. Right. So why does he spare the city and why? Well, I, I think maybe, uh, I think you need to go back to what we were talking about early, where Sherman has this feel for the Southern people. And he, he is, he's told them, and he says that you can see letters and all sorts of other examples of him saying this, as long as you fight, as long as you keep this war up, I will do what's necessary to win it, to preserve the Union. But once you stop fighting, once you give up, then I will become your best friend. And you see that happening. And here in Savannah, what basically happens is the army is on the, uh, the edge of Savannah, Hardy is run away and Sherman lets him get away because he doesn't want to continue fighting. But anyway, as they're getting ready to come into town, who comes moving in the opposite direction but the mayor of Savannah with a buggy and a white flag. And he said, okay, I quit. So Sherman says, fine, you quit. So the soldiers suddenly become great gentlemen. They're paying for their food. They're doing all sorts of other things. Sherman brings food from the north on ships to feed uh, people in Savannah. So if you go to Savannah today, it is a beautiful city. And again, there's an awful lot of antebellum houses there that were there after Sherman came and left. And by the way, the founder of the Girl Scouts of America was a little girl at that time, and she sat on Sherman's knee when he visited her mother, who was the wife of a Confederate soldier. And the Confederate soldiers, Confederate officers, I should, pardon me, put several of their wives in Sherman's control or in Sherman's protection. So it tells you that it's much more complicated than, than we've sometimes been led to believe. So now we've, we're at, 1865, and um, why, I mean, who decides what Sherman is going to do next, Jim? And, and obviously this is our moment when he's going to move north. 
tell us who ordered it and what the point was. Well, in response to Sherman's uh, letter uh, giving Christmas uh, Savannah to Lincoln for Christmas, uh, Lincoln uh, thanks him and said, uh, well, what next? What next? Uh, yes. uh, but I suppose it's, I'll leave it to you and General Grant to figure out what to do next. And what Grant wanted to do was to put Sherman's men on ships and bring them up to uh, Virginia uh, to help close out Lee. Uh, Sherman objected to that and gets involved in a long-range uh, discussion with Grant, just as he had done before the original mm -hmm. march through Georgia, saying, uh, no, I, I'll march north through the Carolinas and come in on Lee's rear that way. Uh, there were both logistical and, I think, strategic reasons for that. It takes an awful lot of ships to move 60,000 men, along with 20,000 animals, artillery, supplies, uh, wagons, and so on, whereas Sherman, where, where they can move themselves if they march across country. So again, Grant says, well, all right, um, uh, your, your first march was successful, um, and uh, you, you're, you're destroying the resources on which the Confederacy is waging this war. Uh, so he turns them loose. And at the beginning of February 1865, uh, Sherman moves out from, uh, from Savannah and starts through South Carolina. Uh, and if, if the uh, march through Georgia was not as destructive of civilian property as myth has taken it, uh, probably in South Carolina it was. Uh, right. It, it measured up to the myth because uh, not so much Sherman personally, but all of his men, his officers, his soldiers, they headed in for South Carolina. They regarded South Carolina as responsible for beginning this war. Uh, they remembered a speech by South Carolina Senator James Henry Hammond back in 1858, uh, which is often called the King Cotton speech. Uh, the whole world depends on King Cotton. Uh, but a lot of Northern soldiers would have called it the mudsill speech uh, because Hammond justified the social order of the South, slavery, uh, because it created a, a wealthy aristocratic class based on the mudsill of the slaves. And he taunted the North saying, uh, we have a mudsill uh, of slaves. You have a mudsill too, but they, uh, they call themselves free. Well, uh, these Northern soldiers remembered uh, the fact that South Carolinians looked down on them as mudsills when they went through South Carolina, and they did have it in. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too uh, that when Sherman was marching through uh, marching through Georgia, uh, there were several letters and uh, diary entries of soldiers who reported that Georgian, particularly Georgian women. Uh, basically said, we don't like what you're doing to us, but give it to South Carolina even more. They're responsible for us being in this mess. So that, that fits yeah. into what, what was said. You really are going to focus on gender studies and the march. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be your next. I want to just take one moment to talk about uh, Sherman and African Americans. This is a Edwin Forbes drawing of stragglers. So I assume that Sherman's armies, Jim, and John attracted African-Americans who were liberated by the army under the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation. But I think we need to talk a little bit about Sherman's attitudes about African-Americans. Well, Sherman uh, was not an abolitionist. He wasn't anywhere close to being an abolitionist. Uh, he loyally supported uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and the Lincoln administration's emancipation policy. Uh, but he was not a proponent of black troops in the Union Army. Right. Uh, and he had no black troops in uh, his army in Georgia. Uh, he did have a, a, a contingent of uh, black pioneers, as they were called. Uh, pioneer in that context meant uh, labor troops. Uh, so they, they uh, played a, a crucial role, especially in the march through South Carolina. What happened uh, to these people who attached themselves to the army? As well, in the case of, of Georgia, he had uh, thousands and thousands of, of uh, uh, African-American slaves following the army. Uh, he tried to discourage that because they ate up supplies. Mm -hmm. uh, but several thousand of them made it all the way to, and a lot of them dropped out. Yeah. Uh, but several thousand of them actually did make it to Savannah with him. Uh, and Sherman, uh, after consulting with Secretary of War Stanton, in January 1865, issued a famous General Order Number 15, 
in which he set aside uh, millions of acres of uh, the low country in Georgia and South Carolina for occupation by uh, freed slaves uh, with whatever uh, possessory titles until Congress can get, make good that land. Well, Congress never did make good that land, and Andrew Johnson, uh, when he became president, returned that land to its owners, but that's another story. But here's Sherman, who uh, is not a strong believer in, in emancipation. He's, uh, I, I guess it'd be fair to call him a racist and, yeah. and from our point mm -hmm. of view. Uh, but he, he does issue this uh, uh, general order or special order? Forget special what, order. Special yeah. order number yeah. 15, setting aside uh, um, many, you know, thousands and thousands of acres yeah. uh, for freed slaves. Later to be taken Later away. Later to be taken away, away from yeah. them. Yeah. Um, but uh, the pioneers, uh, several thousand black laborers, uh, did some of the heavy, heavy uh, work in uh, bridging rivers, uh, corduroying roads uh, in Sherman's march through Georgia. They, they provided essential logistical support for the march, not so much through Georgia, but through the, through mm -hmm. the Carolinas. So John, here we have our, probably should have put this up on the screen earlier, but you see the, the march from Georgia is sort of southeast and sort of winding road up, up the Carolinas. This yeah. is helpful. Why is the path so, is that, would you consider that direct in the Carolinas? Well, I think Jim uh, already began talking about this. That period of time, they were, uh, Sherman wanted to leave beginning of January, a little bit later, to begin the march to the Carolinas, but it was the wettest spring that area had ever had, and streams were overflowing, uh, uh, marshes were full. So these soldiers, Sherman soldiers, literally had to, to march, wade through this kind of water. And Jim mentioned corduroying. Uh, th that's something that we don't think about very much. But corduroying basically is you knock down a tree, you lay it down you know, on the ground, put another tree next to it, another tree next to it, another log next to it, I guess is a better way of putting it. The problem is that usually solves the, you know, the difficulty. But in this case, it was so wet that some of these logs would go down and float up to the circuit, to the sur surface, not to the circuit, to the sur surface. And the result was that they had to put several layers. This was incredibly but difficult. But this is one tree after, it's hard to believe this. It is. And it was, they make that's it how you made a road through but, the mud. Yeah, they, they, that's right, yeah. See, and we're building the Second Avenue subway in New yeah, York, you wanna, and it's <laughs> much slower process. Well, and imagine you're a, you're a horse or a mule, and what happens? You know, you'd like to think that all these things will stay very neatly in a row. They won't. They shift and they move. So horses and mules broke legs. But they, but they manage. He manages. He's moving. He, he, There's he's the, moving. <laughs> and this is why Joe Johnston says that when he he was not in command at this time, when he heard about this. He said, this is the greatest army. Sherman has the greatest army since Caesar, that they could accomplish what they did. They were making 10 miles a day, marching, you know, doing this corduroying and doing everything else, building bridges. And I mean, it was a mess. And it, remember, this is winter, so it's cold. It does get cold in the South. Believe me, it gets cold in the South. <laughs> and so these guys are waiting up to their, their middle and the water's cold, and they have to do this, and the, and the, uh, uh, the African-American pioneers have. It's a terribly difficult thing, and yet it's a comp. That's why Sherman says that the march through the Carolinas is much more significant than the march to the sea, despite the publicity that the first right. one gets. Well, just take a look at this. Uh, in the march from Atlanta to Savannah, you're more or less paralleling yes, right. the major rivers, right. which right. flow southeast. In the march north from uh, Savannah through the Carolinas, especially through South Carolina, you have to cross one river after, after another. another. Yeah. Was there ever, as we look at the march toward Columbia, um, a city we all know well because of current events, why was there or was there a discussion about following the rail line to Charleston, which has such enormous significance, symbolic significance as the place where the American flag was first fired on at Sumter. Well, there's an old, there's an old book done, I guess, in the, in the 1930s by the British historian uh, Liddell Hart. And Liddell Hart talks about that Sherman's great contribution to the 
to history of warfare and all is his indirect approach, that he made the Confederates think, for example, he was going toward Augusta, and then he was going toward Charleston, and then he went up the middle, so to speak, to, uh, to Columbia. But is it his decision? or? I oh, mean, yes. He, oh, yes. And he has the leeway He's to got not the leeway. capture, not go that's, after Charleston. Yeah, sure. Right. Grant gave him complete carte blanche. Do, yeah. do, do it the way you want. that's an important point. And, yeah. Charles, and, and the thing about uh, Charleston, too, of course, once Sherman uh, makes it, you know, this equidistant to, uh, to Charleston, that he's passed it by, he's cut it off, Charleston falls anyway. So right. despite the irony is that the Union troops have been trying to take Charleston for, gosh, how long? Well, they started in 60, uh, 63. Yeah. yeah. And by, but coming through the sea, Sherman just supports it from behind. This drives Confederates crazy. He's supposed to go. There's a great story about, uh, we're going to get into, I know, uh, Columbia, who burned Columbia and all, and all the rest. That Sherman was accused of burning Columbia in the post-war years. And he said, and his response was, no, I didn't. Because if I had, I would let you know that I would do it. I would not deny it, but I didn't do it. And if you're unhappy with that, I'll be happy to call my soldiers back together and we'll come back and finish the job. Well, before we get to Columbia, I know Jim always somehow manages to bring up General James McPherson. I can't imagine why. But I found this wonderful image of one of the stops <laughs> along the way to Columbia, McPhersonville. <laughs> what do we know about McPhersonville? The burning of McPhersonville in South Carolina. Do you, do you know that There's no engagement? Uh, well, he, uh, a lot of towns in South Carolina got burned. Um, my favorite uh, is not necessarily McPhersonville, but a town called Barnwell named after a famous South Carolina family, yes. ever after known to the Union soldiers as Burnwell. Burnwell, <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's um, right. But a lot, of, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of South Carolina, I mean, they did take it on the chin. There's they no were, question about it was it. not like Georgia. So here's, the, here's a sort of a romanticized um, image of the burning of Columbia, and, and uh, John gave us an early glimpse of, of uh, Sherman's not assuming responsibility for the destruction. So this is a romanticized print. Yeah. Next is a photograph of what parts of Columbia looked like after the Sherman went through. And of course, they proudly have kept the bullet pocked uh, side of the state capitol, the same state capitol that flew the Confederate flag all with, those years. With a star next to the, 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 the holes. Yeah. And so Sherman did blast away at the state capitol. No, there, there were, he, he, he threw in a couple shots into the city. No question about that. But uh, we were talking about this. There's a, there's a well-known book. If you really want to get, I think, a good insight into what went on in Columbia, there's a book by a Marion B. Lucas. Uh, and it was published, I think it's published by University of South Carolina Press. Or well, they, they, they reprinted it. They reprinted it. Originally published by Texas, Texas A&M. Okay. Well, in any case, this historian, uh, who's from South Carolina, by the way, uh, said that there were three reasons why Columbia was burned. Wind, whiskey, and cotton. And that it was both sides had something to do with Sherman's troops came Not in. because they wanted the cotton, because it was a tinder. It's tinder, it yeah. went up and smoked. The cotton, right? uh, they, they, they were going to burn all the cotton. The Confederates, as they were leaving, Hardy was, was leaving. It was and actually Wade Hampton. I mean, Wade his, Hampton, his, I'm his sorry, cavalry. not Hardy, Wade Hampton, exactly. But Wade Hampton. Who was a wealthy South Carolina planter, uh, one of the largest slaveholders in, in, the, right. uh, in the South and one reputed to be the richest man in the South, and, cavalry commander. And Lee sent him down to, you know, from Virginia to try, to try to help out. But anyway, there were these cotton bales in the, middle of the, of the, in the streets in the middle of the city, and wind came up and started the fire going again. In the meantime, as the soldiers or the Union soldiers are coming into Columbia, somebody has the bright idea that there is whiskey here and there is all kinds of hard liquor here that people from Charleston and other places have sent to Columbia because it's going to be safe. So they are literally doling out liquor in, in you know, these big ladles. And so you can imagine what is happening there. 
But anyway, the, the point that Lucas uh, makes is that it, it's, there's a lot of reasons why uh, Columbia burned to the ground. And by the way, it didn't burn to the ground. Uh, the estimate is about 30% of it was, was burned. Same thing with Atlanta. Atlanta was about 30, 30%. But it's pretty, it's pretty rough there. I mean, it's, it's still, that, it depends what, because a lot of it was uh, the, uh, the military aspects. Right. But, but still, yeah, 30%. But it's not like gone with the wind. Right. Where everything so I, I want to go through some of these slides so we can get Sherman out of the Carolinas and into Virginia and then do an assessment. So here we do have the use of African-American troops in the Carolinas. They are there, they're in Charleston, they're, they're maybe not Sherman's men, but they are yeah. symbolically an important part of the Union conquest of the Carolinas. And of course, Sherman then gets to Virginia and has this famous meeting with, with, um, with Lincoln. My favorite part of the meeting, I guess, is, the, is speaking of whiskey, is Sherman's trying to find out what Lincoln wants done with Confederate President Jefferson Davis if he's captured. And Lincoln responds by telling a story, of yes. course, of an Irishman <laughs> who, had, who had given up whiskey after long years battling, battling the bug of drinking. And he now asked his friends for a lemonade. And then he said, refusing whiskey. And he said, well, I'll turn my back. And if you add some whiskey unbeknownst to myself, to me. that would be acceptable. So Sherman got it. He got Davis it. can escape. But it had to be unbeknownst to unbeknownst Lincoln. Unbeknownst to Lincoln, right, right. So Appomattox is done. Lee has surrendered. Um, Lincoln is dead. And Sherman finally sits at a table with Johnston. I think before our questions begin, we have to deal with this extraordinary surrender because Johnston decides to give away the store that he's sure. just, Sherman, I'm sure. sorry, Sherman. decides to give away a little too much. Just tell us what happened here at this first meeting. At, this is the Bennett House, right? Uh, yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. But I think you, again, have to go back to what we said at the beginning, Sherman said. And, and what Jim also noted about Sherman's attitude toward black troops. But Sherman said that once you quit fighting, I will become your best friend. So the, the so-called Sherman-Johnston Treaty includes things that are very, very helpful to the South. For example, the soldiers are given authority to keep their weapons and take them back to the state arsenals. Remember how the Civil War began? Uh, you have, uh, uh, you know, you have any number of this, no mention of slavery. But there's a mention that uh, uh, the Confederates will be able to keep their property. So what does that mean? So it's, it's a, but it fits to what, what Sherman has always said he was going to do. Sherman doesn't like African-Americans. So he, he doesn't see any reason. He wants, keeps saying over and going, we'll go back to the good old days before the war started. Right. And I always like to point out to Sherman, if he was around, uh, that the good old days before the coming of the war, saw a situation where the South dominated the federal government and slavery was accepted. So is Sherman giving away the store? I think he is. I think he makes a, he makes a big mistake here. And, and what's the reaction back in Washington, Jim? Well, when he sends the, the um, uh, terms of the surrender agreement with Johnson back to uh, uh, Washington, the, the um, cabinet meets with President Andrew Johnson and they reject the terms. And Grant's in Washington, and they uh, tell Grant to uh, go down and take over control of Sherman's army. Yeah, fire Sherman. Uh, fire Sherman, uh, and gives Johnston the same terms that he's given Lee at Appomattox. Uh, Grant doesn't. Grant doesn't want to, you know, to alienate Sherman. Doesn't want to insult him. Doesn't want to, uh, to ruin him. So he goes down and quietly tells Sherman, uh, "No, these are unacceptable." Uh, and give, give them the same terms that, uh, that I gave Lee at Appomattox. And Sherman meets with Johnston again and, and does that. And Johnston, who has played a role here, I think he, he actually sold Sherman a bill of goods in that first one. Yeah. <laughs> he, well, he wept when he heard the news about Lincoln, so that softened Sherman up. Sherman up, up yeah. yeah. And uh, Johnston, of course, is in no position to refuse these new terms. 
And so they conclude the surrender terms uh, about 10 days after the original time. But in the meantime, uh, Secretary of War Stanton has released to the press mm. uh, the information about yeah. Sherman's uh, original terms with a, with a uh, putting the spin on them that uh, Sherman has uh, given away Getting the store. Away the store yeah. uh, and uh, uh, Sherman becomes a uh, subject of uh, a great deal of criticism. He goes from her hero to, uh, to uh, bomb. But he had seven months of great press. Yeah. Seven straight months, yeah. which is pretty amazing. Uh, pretty, pretty, well, yeah, if anybody has any ago. questions, by the way, please come to the microphones now and we'll recognize you in a moment. Anyhow, Sherman never forgave uh, Secretary of War Stanton for what he regarded as uh, shoddy treatment. And when he met Stanton on the reviewing stand on the, uh, the uh, victorious march of the armies in Washington, Grand which is review. right here, the Grand Review, uh, Stanton came up to shake hands with Sherman and Sherman turned away and refused yeah. to shake hands with him, a famous incident. Yeah. But you know, uh, but let's, I think we need to okay, go uh, to some questions. Yeah, okay. Hi, my name is Joyce Hall. My great grandmother, when I was a very small child, talked about the Union soldiers coming through Canton, North Carolina, mm -hmm. Western North Carolina. That's not on your route. Do you know anything about that? Um. <laughs> Well, I, I can tell you there's, there's, there's been a wonderful article, and I wish I could think of the, of the person's name in a folklore magazine, talking about, it, even before the gender uh, issue of the March to the Sea, but in which there is a, a constant refrain in a lot of folklore that, that uh, is passed from generation to generation about the fact that it was the women of the South who stood up to Sherman and they would, uh, uh, it would be something like it was an old girlfriend of his, and so he didn't want to do anything. Or it was a great uh, Masonic area, and he was a great Mason. None of that is true. And even the stories about the women standing up to the soldiers simply, you know, didn't happen. But you're right, North Carolina was particularly famous because in, in going through North Carolina, the soldiers noticed that the, the pine trees, gave off a lot of resin, and so you could light them. And you'd have these flames just shooting up into the, uh, into the skies, and they would do dumb things like they'd take one of their buddies, grab him out of the bed where he was sleeping, and, and not staple him, but stick him to one of these trees that had been caught on fire. So there was a lot of, <laughs> lot of foolishness like this going on, too. But we don't know about that. Well, yeah, but how wide was the Carolina Army? Was it as 60 miles wide like the Georgia? It, well, I, I was going to say, I was going to make the point, I, I don't completely agree with Jim, because in some places it was 60 miles in, uh, in, in Georgia, but in other places, when they came together, it was, you know, it, it, yeah. it went, this sort of thing. But it, was, uh, it, it wasn't quite as wide because of the, the, the weather conditions. In the, the Carolinas. Carolinas. Yeah. 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 Yes. Uh, first of all, I want to congratulate all three of you for making rather easily understood uh, a very interesting campaign down there. But my question that somebody, one of you stated, referred to a gender war, which was something I've never heard before, and it piqued my interest. I know you said that you didn't agree it was a gender war, but those proponents of calling it that, what was their reasoning? What, well, what was their reasoning for saying there was a gender war? Oh, the, the historians. Basically, what they do is they, they go through diaries left by women, a lot of good Confederate diaries and letters, et cetera, and they extrapolate events that these people, these women talked about, and they argue that actually Sherman's march was a battle not of military nature, but it was a battle against the role of women in, in society. And, and he argues that, uh, that as a result of Sherman's march, the men were looked down on because they couldn't stop this. The women became the, the, the heroines because they stood up to the soldiers. None of that is particularly completely accurate. In some cases it was, but in most cases it wasn't. But yeah. area for further study, obviously. Yes, sir. When I look back on American history and I um, hear about General Sherman, Grant, uh, Robert E. Lee, um, Stonewall Jackson, uh, and 
going to MacArthur and Patton, um, the generals, American generals, are have very rich personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you you know bring it to di- today, um, they don't stand out as conspicuously as they did in history. Uh, how do you explain that, and how does that affect our military? You want to give that a try, Professor? That's a <laughs> tough uh, one. Well, I'm not sure I understand the question, but if, uh, are you saying that the, the, the generals today don't have the same kind of image and the colorful? Yes. Uh, well, the Civil War and World War II, the, the generals in the two, uh, the, the two wars that, that you mentioned the generals were in, were the two biggest wars that this country ever fought. And so they're going to throw to the surface uh, these dominant personalities. But now, uh, with brush fire wars and minor wars and, and uh, n- nothing on anywhere remotely similar to the scale of the Civil War or World War II, you're not going to have these people being thrown to the surface. Uh, you you and, had and Iraq that lasted a long time. You had well, Vietnam. But, but Iraq, it, how many, five or 6,000 American soldiers died in Iraq? 750,000 died in the Civil War. 500,000 died in World War II. That's a huge difference. And it's going to create uh, a, a huge difference in image uh, and in the role that these people play in, in historical in a major historical event. Let's try to get in one, one more question. A uh, question for Professor Marsalak. Uh, you mentioned that um, when Sherman proposed to uh, march through the South and leave behind his base of supplies, that this got Grant and Lincoln very nervous. However, uh, isn't it true that when Grant executed his Vicksburg campaign, he was going to cut himself off from his base of supplies? when he crossed the river, and uh, so why wasn't he more sympathetic to what Sherman was trying to do? Very good question. Anybody here hear yes. the question? Um, that, you know, that, that is very accurate because some historians argue that Sherman got his idea for breaking away from, the, um, from his supply base, et cetera, from what uh, uh, Grant did in, uh, in Vicksburg when he, when he crossed the, the river, et cetera. The, the difficulty with that uh, interpretation, I think, and I've talked to some people who know a heck of a lot more about the Battle of Vicksburg than I do, and they argue that actually Grant never cut his supply line. And the irony is it was Sherman who kept insisting that he, that he do what had to be done to keep that supply line going. It was a very complicated supply line because it did indeed go across the river and come this way. But one of the first things that Grant wanted to do and did when he, when he, when he came onto uh, Mississippi soil was to make sure that his supply line was, in, was indeed there. So Grant does, and, and you can see this in letters where he talks about, yeah, I cut, my, cut myself you know, off from my supplies, et cetera. But I don't think it's to the great degree that, that Sherman did in, in the March to the Sea. Very Sherman's march uh, uh, from Atlanta to Savannah was 285 miles. Uh, from, from the Mississippi yeah. River to Jackson is only 40 miles. Yeah. Good. Uh, so it's a huge difference in yeah. the logistical situation. So, so I always like to um, end with a quote from the Commander-in-Chief. <laughs> and um, so let's conclude with the words of thanks that the president sent to Sherman after the surrender of Savannah. Um, Not quite what next, which is a pretty rough thing to say after that kind of triumph, but um, a demonstration that he was always willing to share credit uh, for great moments in, in the war. So this is what Lincoln wrote to Sherman after getting that extraordinary Christmas gift of Savannah. When you, are, when you were about leaving Atlanta for the Atlantic coast, I was anxious, if not fearful. But feeling that you were the better judge and remembering that nothing tricked, nothing gained, I did not interfere. Now the undertaking being a success, the honor is all yours. It brings those who sat in darkness to see a great light. Magnanimous and evocative. Well, you've helped us see uh, light on a number of programs, especially this 
campaign. You've enlightened us. It's always wonderful to appear with John and Jim. And if you keep coming, we'll keep coming. Thank you. <laughs> Harold, Harold Holzer, um, John Marzalek, James McPherson, aren't these three amazing? <laughs> so we look forward to having you return again and again. You know, if, if we could, we could just order Chinese food and stay for another <laughs> session. But we, ha we all have to go. They will be here staying for a book signing. You can stay a little while, go to our museum store, chat with them, and then go to our cafe for dinner. We look forward to seeing you all again. Thank you all so much, and thank you three wonderful thank gentlemen. You.